Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide leaders with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving health industry. Brought to you by Vynamic, Trending Health explores topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's Trending News Europe episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Vynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, it's been a while. What headlines have you been following lately? It has been a while. Happy New Year, Jen, Ollie, and to our loyal listeners and for those listening for the first time. We're going to be kicking off this episode actually with a little bit of a gloomy topic. I promise uh, our episode is uplifting, but we are going to start by talking about death. And essentially, it relates to life expectancy, which has fallen, unfortunately, to the lowest level in a decade in the United Kingdom. This has been shown by some recent studies by the Institute for Health Equity in The Lancet, which has shown that has been a continued excess of deaths long after the peaks of the COVID-19 pandemic. And essentially, excess deaths are the difference between actual registered number of deaths and the expected deaths based on data that has accumulated from previous years. And essentially, the UK Office for National Statistics has calculated that there were 7.2% more deaths registered in the UK in 2022 in comparison with the five-year average, not including 2020. And that persisted into 2023 with 8.6%, or to put that into perspective, around 28,000 more deaths registered in the first six months of the year than what was expected. And unfortunately, this increase in excess deaths also correlates to a drop in overall life expectancy. And so again, put that in perspective, for example, boys that were born between 2020 and 2022 can expect to live to 78 years, and that's a decrease of around 38 weeks compared with the same measure between the years of 2017 and 2019. I guess quite gloomy news to start 2024 with Jack, especially as our expectations living in a country like the UK are that with time, life expectancy will increase. I guess one caveat in that life expectancy data point is that Although the life expectancy figures have fallen, this does not necessarily mean that a baby born since the pandemic would have a shorter life because of, as I said, continuing changes in mortality rates and in healthcare during that baby's then lifetime. But nevertheless, I'm intrigued to know what the root cause of these excess deaths are. To be honest, it's not really that clear, Ollie. What I can tell you is that from June 2022 to June 2023, Excess deaths for all causes were relatively greatest for those in the 50 to 64-year-old bracket, which is 15% higher than expected. And that was followed by those that are in the 25 to 49-year-old bracket, and that was 11% higher. And excess deaths data did show that causes from deaths such as coronary heart disease was one of the leading causes. And that was followed by other conditions that you might think about when you think about uh, those that cause high number of deaths. Those include things like cancer, stroke and diabetes, as well as chronic respiratory diseases. But we do know that over you know, 25% of the UK population is obese at present, which is quite a shocking statistic. So I imagine quite a lot of those deaths are related to things stemming from the complications related to obesity. And I do still wonder if the cardiovascular related excess deaths are still due to the long term impact of COVID-19. I know you mentioned that the 2020 figures were removed from that study, Jack, but the impact of COVID-19 on the heart and on the circulatory system and the continued disruption in the UK 
to GP and to heart care services, what is the, the long-term impact of that? It sounds like we definitely need more research to get a clear understanding of the causes of these excess deaths. I know there was a call for the government to launch a public inquiry into the excess mortality in England and Wales and what the drivers of this were. I don't believe it's resulted in a formal inquiry yet. Also, there's an interesting health equity angle in all of this. As we know in the UK, the number of excess deaths is associated with the area inequality. And unfortunately, this area inequality is increasing over time. So a coherent cross-government strategy that looks at reducing those health inequalities with geography whilst improving the health of the people in those deprived communities is a really crucial piece of the puzzle. I can agree more with everything you just said. And whilst life expectancy has recovered somewhat since that sharp fall that we saw in 2020 when we were in the midst of that pandemic, and it's not at the bounce back that we might have expected once the worst of the pandemic was over. And this essentially points to much larger and deep-rooted problems within the health of the nation, as well as the resilience of the healthcare system as a whole. Jack, back to what you referenced before around heart disease playing a significant role in these excess deaths. We do know that diabetes and obesity are big drivers of the disease. And in 2023, we saw the launch of the next generation of obesity drugs and diabetes drugs with the rise of Wigovi globally. And perhaps this new release might make a meaningful difference to the level of excess deaths in the UK. Wigovi can cut the risk of cardiovascular events such as heart attack and stroke by 20%. And the reduction in weight through reducing their appetites can then also improve exercise function and the patient's quality of life. Yeah, Wegovi is a really interesting development. I think we've all heard about it and it's much talked about across Europe and across the globe in terms of the impacts this drug can have on those that are obese and managing difficult health conditions. And I do think it could be a real game changer, Ollie, especially if we see increased availability over the next couple of years. And there's been a lot in the press around difficulty in getting access to this medication, given it's been so popular. So if we see increased availability and People still do, you know, effective diet and exercise interventions. I think it could help us improve the health of our nation and decrease terrible events related to obesity. And as we know, last year we had what Novo Nordisk, which is the drug manufacturer that makes this medication, had a controlled and limited launch of Wegovi in specialist NHS weight management services in the UK. But as we saw in 2023, due in part to a surge in off-label prescriptions, we had that significant global shortage in supply. And prescriptions in the UK were also limited by the National Institute for Health and Care to two years because there's not enough data available on that drug's long-term impacts. And there have been some side effects that have been reported. However, from what we can see coming through various news outlets and from the manufacturer is that these supply chain constraints will hopefully ease through 2024. And that's really exciting because a lot more patients are going to be able to get access to this medication. But of course, with any new medication, you've got to balance that against the clinical data and the real world evidence that is out there to make sure that it's effective for the population and importantly, that it's safe. And lastly, there are some positive signs with ministers launching a 40 million pilot scheme to trial the wider access of this jab, Wigovi, and to examine how people could receive this drug out of hospitals. That's great to hear, Jack. And I'm really hopeful that this new pilot will show that we can use the latest drugs to support people 
in their weight loss journeys in a sustainable way and decrease the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. We know the huge impact that these diseases have in the UK, both on health services and on the patients. So hopefully this is the start of a new class of drugs that can really make a difference. And as we've said on, on the pod before, by 2050 in the UK, modelling indicates that 60% of adult men and 50% of adult women could be obese. So I'm really excited about the potential for Wigovi to change the dial over the next few years. Yeah, this next generation of obesity drugs is really poised to disrupt markets, I would say, worldwide, in particular here in the States where our obesity figures might be a little bit more bleak than those in the UK. It's really great to see some of the wraparound data they're showing with the direct impact, not only on just weight reduction and obesity, but also associated cardiovascular diseases as well. And also the paradigm shift, right, from away from just this idea of you know, you have like the two extremes for obesity treatment. There's just the diet and exercise recommendation, or there is bariatric or gastric surgery, finding maybe some, some middle ground that's a bit more accessible and can treat a broader swath of the affected population and hopefully improve long-term health outcomes. Speaking of surgery, I saw another story, Ollie, that caught my eye and I thought you might have some thoughts about as our climate change prevention advocate here at Dynamic around the impact of surgical care on the environment. Absolutely, Jen. So this is a landmark report on reducing the environmental impact of surgical care. For a bit of background for our listeners, surgical care is a major area of resource consumption in healthcare provision. With the carbon footprint of surgical care in the UK alone estimated to be 5.7 million tons of CO2. Now, I know that number might not mean much. So in context, to offset the surgical care CO2 production, it would require planting of over half a million hectares of forest, which is about triple the size of London. At the same time, the NHS, alongside the healthcare systems of 27 other countries, have committed to net zero carbon targets. And from 2017 to 2021, we have seen a reduction of 27% in the carbon emissions associated with powering NHS facilities. So this green report is the first detailed report of its kind, looking at what they're calling green surgery, and includes a clear and significant set of recommendations across the surgical care pathways, from operating theatre design to the products used in surgical care, and ultimately to support these very ambitious sustainability goals. Ollie, I know you're so passionate about this area, and I can definitely hear that passion coming through as you describe that particular piece of research. And it sounds really interesting. And although the report has been produced primarily with the UK in mind, it seems that there is much that will be useful to surgical teams more broadly and across the world. And I know you're an avid follower of the NHS Net Zero journey. So I'm wondering which of the recommendations in this new report particularly stood out to you. There is so much to unpack in the report, Jack, but just to focus on one of the interesting aspects was around streamlining surgical patient care pathways, particularly with aspects of the post-operative period. So in this example, the case study was from Southampton NHS Trust over a 24-month period. They had 238 patients that were admitted to cardiac intensive care post-cardiac surgery. 
And in this case study, the trust brought in a new early mobilization program, including the use of equipment for passive exercise for these patients. Now, the result of this program was that they were able to reduce the average cardiac intensive care stay by six days. Now, this really stood out to me is not only is there a big benefit to sustainability here because it cut their CO2 emissions by 48 tonnes over the 24-month period, but also it saved Southampton over £1.2 million and it's a much better outcome for the patients and for bed management in Southampton NHS Trust. Yeah, it sounds like a win-win for all involved. And, and it's a, that brilliant intersection of both cost savings, environmentally healthy practices, as well as that improved patient experience, as you articulated. But out of interest, was there anything in that report around operating theatres in particular? Because from what I remember, those are some of the most energy intensive areas of hospitals. Yes, when you dig into the detail in these topics, you really learn that there are specific areas that are huge drivers of carbon emissions, and one of those are operating theatres. So they use three to six times more energy than clinical wards. And one of the largest drivers for operating theatres are actually the advanced ventilation systems. These are really important in operating theatres. They control the temperature, the humidity, and also airborne contamination. And in Nuffield Health, which is a private health system in the UK, they trialed switching theatre ventilation off overnight rather than being on a hibernate mode. This sounds like a very straightforward change to make, but they actually found that if this was rolled out across all 3,000 operating theatres in the NHS, it could lead to a huge national carbon saving of 108,000 tonnes of CO2 per year. It all makes obviously perfect sense, but quite often the devil is in the details. So I wondered if you knew of any potential barriers that might be to this implementation of these types of initiatives. I think when it comes to sustainability and making changes within people's place of work, engagement is always going to be key. From what I've read, many surgical teams are really motivated to improve sustainability a YouGov survey of healthcare staff found that 87% supported the NHS net zero carbon targets. However, I think this growing engagement and the want to make changes really needs to be matched with greater education, guidance and leadership. Uh, perhaps this can include protected time to work on improving sustainability. I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of a surgeon, how do you focus on improving the sustainability of your practice alongside your day-to-day -day role and your day-to-day -day pressures? And that also applies, I think, across the economy. I also feel that specifically surgical teams are in an interesting position where they can engage with patients and the public as well to raise awareness of the interdependence between human and planetary health and involve patients in promoting sustainable, high-quality surgical care. I love that example around the early mobilization unit as really being like a win-win-win in terms of helping the planet, helping the bottom line, and improving patient outcomes. I find the proposed interventions here really encouraging and hopefully things that we can take stateside as well. I'm wondering if there are any stories further afield. We've covered a couple from the UK proper, but is there anything else percolating across Europe that we want to chat about? 
Yeah, something I wanted to cover a little bit of a different angle relates to Lithuania, uh, which is set to become home to the largest biosec city in the world. And I was quite staggered when uh, I found this out. I thought it was important for us to highlight it. And for many, Lithuania conjures up images of historic towns, vibrant forests, and for those that follow basketball, one of the top-ranked basketball teams in the world. But now this country is ushering in a modern wave of biotech and medtech innovation. And this ranges from medical psychedelic research to cutting edge gene therapy. It's also ranked within the top European countries with the highest percentage of qualified workforce employed in STEM related topics. And it's got one of the highest percentages of women with tertiary education. So that's the highest level of education you can attain employed in science and technology across the whole of Europe. I confess this is the first I'm hearing about Lithuania's growing biotech or medtech market. Jack, are there any particular companies that we know about which seem to be really heavily investing in Lithuania as a new market? Yeah, so Thermo Fisher's expansion into Lithuania has really been one of the catalysts for the life sciences landscape transformation. And this US life sciences company, which is a market cap of over $200 billion, expanded into Lithuania first back in 2010, when it acquired biotech company Fermentas for around $260 million. And Thermo Fisher currently has a hub which has been further expanded in 2020, and it employs 1,900 individuals for biotech research and development and manufacturing, and it's situated in the capital Vilnius. I also imagine that for some of these companies, there might be significant financial efficiencies to be made in R&D costs should they choose to set up a hub in Lithuania. For a lot of clinical teams, you know, we hear that the sheer cost of delivering trials in certain European countries, such as perhaps Denmark, is a deterrent. So the opportunity to source, as you say, high quality labor, site monitoring and CRO facilities at a fraction of the cost would be a big advantage. Yeah, I think it's got the perfect combination of cost and talent, and it definitely makes it a really attractive market for more than just R&D, actually. For example, when you look at annual labor costs for medical device manufacturing facilities, it's estimated that a manufacturing facility in Lithuania would cost around 5.6 million euros, whereas a similar facility in Switzerland would cost 35.6 million euros. So a massive, massive difference there. As a result, we're seeing more and more investment in this country. And for example, just a few weeks ago, a company called Northway Group, which for those of you who don't know, is a group of around 17 enterprises within the fields of medicine, healthcare, biotechnical formation and investment operations, announced that its latest project will see a vast biotech city be built in the capital of Lithuania. And this biotechnology hub called BioCity is going to be the largest in Europe and home to an impressive six large biotechnological complexes, four of which are going to be state-of-the-art manufacturing plants and two of which will be scientific research centres. And the whole site is going to be an area equivalent to the size of 10 football fields and expected to cost in the region of $7 billion over the course of the next 10 years. Basketball and biotech, what more could you want? Um, All joking aside, it's really great to see some diversification in the European market that is enabling new hubs to form as businesses are looking to find quality talent in a cost-effective manner. Thanks, Ali and Jack, for taking us through this month's news stories. As always, we know the only constant in the industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. 
Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. To help more listeners find the podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, or leave a review. For more information about this episode and the team behind it, check out trendinghealth.com. And to learn more about how Dynamic helps health companies transform by connecting strategy to action, visit dynamic.com.